Hello, my name is Celia Hirsch, and I'm a volunteer with Igniting Change, an intentionally tiny but outcome-mighty organisation based in Melbourne, Australia. Igniting Change has walked alongside many individuals and organisations making a difference, usually working with very thorny issues in decidedly unsexy areas. It's unlike any charity you may have previously encountered, and its catchphrase is, see the person, not the label. What we are seeking to do with this podcast is introduce you to the people of Igniting Change and the people we work alongside. Our guest today is Tal Fitzpatrick, an artist, researcher, craftivist and community development worker. Hi Tal. Hi, how's it going? I'm good, thanks. That's quite a mouthful for all those titles that you have. (laughs) I know, it's not very streamlined. What is a craftivist? Um, So a craftivist is someone who uses craft as a strategy for activism and advocacy. And I just um, recently finished my PhD research into the subject. What's your medium? I primarily use textiles and specifically applique quilting and embroidery. Was this something that you learned as a child? How did you develop this interest in quilting? So textiles is actually something I've only been working in for the past five, six years. I started my PhD and kind of picked up textiles simultaneously because I was interested in looking at uh, social engagement and how you can engage community members as part of your arts practice and it kind of struck me that quilting and craft is something that there is so much of at the grassroots level and that people who don't feel that they're artists still have this kind of affinity for craft and there's less of this kind of hierarchy. Isn't a quilt something warm and cosy that you put on a bed? It is but there's also a long history of using quilting as a creative artistic medium here in Australia and overseas as well in the States. Um, So quilted wall hangings are quite a wonderful medium that does kind of play into that idea of how we emotionally connect to the materiality of the works um, but they're also quite striking visually. So uh, quilting for for protest if you like yours are the first that I've seen and perhaps I've had a sheltered life but is it something that is a thing in in other places? Yeah so there's a long history of um, textiles being used as a strategy for activism um, going all the way back hundreds of years but a good example is the suffragettes who created textile banners um, that they marched with uh, and also used embroidery when they were incarcerated to kind of document um, who was incarcerated where and for how long. There's also a strong history of quilting and craft being used as a way to um, raise funds for the civil rights movement in the United States. There's a fantastic book for people who are interested by Rosita Parker called The Subversive Stitch that kind of outlines some of the history of the way that women have used textiles as a subversive medium. Why do you think they work? I think uh, traditionally because uh, craft in some cultures was seen as a woman's work. It was one of the few places that women had the opportunity to express themselves and to also come together in groups with other women and talk. So a lot of the times it's not actually about what they were making. It was about the opportunity to sit down with other women. The talking. And and scheme. uh, Yeah. Because there was very few opportunities for women to get out of the house. There was this idea that if you weren't working, it was devious somehow. So they were still busy, the hands were still busy, uh, but they were able to get together and chat about what was going on in their lives, about their worries, about what was happening in their communities. Do you do the same same sort of thing when you're 
sewing so <laughs> scheme <laughs> um i definitely look for ways to connect with others and the um thing about the contemporary craftivist movement is that a lot of that work has moved um from having kind of quilting circles and quilting bees to uh using social media as a, the platform from which to connect so i've got uh I, I connect with crafters from all over the world. So I have people I'm connected to from Canada, from the United States, in the UK, it's in exciting. South Africa. Yeah, so there's people all over the world who kind of share their their artwork through mediums like Instagram, for example. And how do people respond to your work? There's all different kinds of responses to the kind of works that I do, which are highly political and very feminist. Because this isn't a, a visual medium, can you give us an idea of some of the things, some of the, the slogans that have been written? I remember you had some pretty cool stuff. March. In my PhD exhibition? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the good projects that I've completed that kind of exemplifies how craftivism really operates was called the PM Please Quilt Project, which was a project that involved collecting tweets from people. So I sent out a message on social media uh, when Malcolm Turnbull first became our Prime Minister, asking if you had a chance to send one message to the Prime Minister that started with the words PM Please, what would that be? And about 121 people sent me responses in a couple of weeks and I collected all of those responses and stitched them verb- verbatim onto suit swatches and then turned that into a Wagga-style quilt that had all of these messages that ranged from PM please resign to PM please come up to Emerald to have a cup of tea to PM please legalize same-sex marriage PM please end offshore processing of asylum seekers so they were really diverse messages Mm. and I gifted the quilt to the Prime Minister. Did you see him? I didn't see him I handed it into his office in Sydney and I got confirmation that he'd seen it and accepted it and what ended up happening with that quilt is it's a bit difficult for politicians to accept gifts so we ended up actually donating the quilt to the Museum of Australian Democracy in Canberra and it's part of their permanent collection now and it's exhibited as part of the Prime Minister's exhibition so it's behind glass and everyone can go see it this way it's out there for the public and there's a letter that the Prime Minister wrote in response to the project right next it. it sounds a little bit like uh, a Q&A situation except just with <laughs> it took a lot longer yeah. to get on the screen. Yeah, the, the real power of craftivism is the idea that because it's so soft and gentle and feminine and there are all these associations with it that make it really non-threatening, mm. you can do quite subversive things and get your message across to places where you might otherwise not be able to. Mm. So, for example the Prime Minister probably would have ignored all of the tweets that he was tagged in. But put it on something beautiful and quilted and warm and fuzzy and he was he couldn't help but look at it. Yeah, and if you add on to that the power of gift-giving, mm. it really changes the way that people relate to objects. You had some pretty good messages in the women's movement marches. Do you remember some of the more um, targeted ones there? So uh, when the women's march was happening and I attended the sister march here in Melbourne and um, my quilted protest banner said fuck your patriarchy oh (laughs) might have to bleep that out (laughs) so my work my personal work does get very direct (laughs) but I think that that was something that really appealed to young women particularly who are particularly fond of swearing and of also having that kind of 
short, sharp message. Mm. And, and again, it's the contrast because mm. when you say it, it sounds very harsh, but it's actually like beautifully embroidered onto cute. this like, <laughs> you know, really nice quilt. So it kind of, it's that contrast that's really striking. Tell me about the um, UDHR quilt project. So one of my most recent craftivism projects is a global collaboration that I started along with a Arizona-based artist called Stephanie Dunlop. And this was a, a, a social media Yep, so this started, she contacted me um, via Instagram, via direct message, just after Trump was elected. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a really weird time in the world. It felt a bit like things were were really being turned upside down. It was a dark time. Mm. And um, Stephanie contacted me. Um, She was really struggling to deal with what was happening. And she said, I've always been really passionate about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I've always wanted to do a project about it. And she's an embroidery artist, so her thoughts was to embroider the whole document. But Mm. it's actually a huge document. It's got 30 articles, um, and each of them are like a paragraph long. Mm, So she she reached out to ask if I might be able to help her realise this project. And I suggested that we could actually put a call out to artists through Instagram to see if anyone else would like to help us embroider these articles. So we put out a call out um, in like March of 2016, I think it was. And within three days, we had so many people sign up to be part of the project that we had enough artists to stitch the 30 articles four times over. So we <laughs> we wow. had to like stop taking applications, but we... Um, instead of turning people down, we included everyone who signed up within that first week. What happens if the stitching was not very good? So the other <laughs> – it's a good question because we could have easily said, okay, well, we'll pick the best 30 mm. out of this, sure. um, you know, this number of people. Uh, but that's really not what the ethos of craftivism is. It's about being inclusive. It's about creating opportunities for people to express themselves, to share their voice through craft. So we said we won't turn anyone down. Anyone who wants to be part of this project within that time frame that signed up, um, we welcome. So out of that, I created four two-by-two-metre quilts, each that have the 30 articles embroidered onto them. And there are 131 different artists from 20 three different countries around the world involved in this project and they represent over 43 different nationalities so there's people from all different kinds of cultures and backgrounds who participated in this project. That must have been immensely gratifying to pull that together. It was just it's really humbling and the project continues to be really humbling because it created this amazing network of 99% women (laughs) we have one male artist um, who's an American Mexican artist who participated but yeah it's really powerful and every artist used their contribution as an opportunity to talk to a specific human rights issue so it doesn't just celebrate the aspirations of the universal declaration of human rights it actually raises complex issues about what's the kind of violations of these UN declaration and and the fact that we need to care more about human rights and we need to fight for human rights because they are being violated around the world. How did each each artist do that within the parameter of stitching their particular article? You can actually find the UDHR Quilt Project website and on that website you can click onto every 
square and read about the artist and read about what they wrote about. But you'll see that alongside the text of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, there is actually like images and additional text that people use to raise awareness about specific issues. One of the Australian artists embroidered the Australian tent embassy, which is um, the Aboriginal embassy that's Mm -hmm. actually physically opposite the Museum of Australian Democracy in Canberra to raise awareness about Indigenous sovereignty and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders' continuous fight against oppression here in Australia. So that was embroidered on her page. Oh, that's clever. That went on display in Canberra, did it not? Yep. So um, that project is currently being exhibited also at the Museum of Australian Democracy. And we're going to tour that project to different countries around the world in the coming years um, and hopefully yeah, create a bit of a book project out of that. So that's going to continue to grow over time and we're going to continue to use that as a kind of tool to start complex conversations about human rights. So it's really a case of from little things, big things grow, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. We had no idea that it would turn into something so huge when we, you know, when Stephanie first sent me that private message on Instagram. So we spend a lot of time talking about the evils of social media and, and so forth, but it's it's really nice to hear about the connections that you can garner by going on Instagram, going on Twitter, and people who have a like-mindedness and an is- interest in the same sort of issues. It's it's remarkable and it's it's fantastic. It can definitely be deployed for good as yes, well as evil. Yes, good and evil. <laughs> How did you get here? Take me back to Little Tal. What was she mm-hmm. like? So I was born in Israel. Uh, my dad is Australian. My mum is Israeli. And we moved over to Australia as a family in 1996 when I was eight years old. What was that like? <laughs> I didn't speak any English. Um, and Did you get teased? I got teased a lot at school. I, I hated primary school and I didn't really like high school either. Um, I found it really difficult to make friends at the beginning. We moved uh, to the Gold Coast because that's where uh, there was a really good special school for my older brother to go to. Okay. So you said your, your older brother's got a disability. Do you think that your experience with him has made you more likely to be a person who goes out and talks on behalf of other people? I definitely think that having a family member with a severe disability was very kind of formative in the way that I in like my characteristics so he he taught me patience he taught me the importance of being inclusive uh he taught me (laughs) that uh well because he took up so much of um my mum's attention I I spent a lot of time helping her with my younger brothers so it was a lot of uh, you know uh, responsibility um and but it, it made you a nurturer. Yeah, it, it, it's very much shaped me into the person that I am today. And, I'm and an advocate. really grateful for that. And yeah, so I've obviously always been very passionate about the rights of people with disabilities. Um, and as a young person, I did quite a bit of work with arts organisations that provided programs for young people with disabilities. So I did a bit of work while I was at university. So we'll just go back for a sec. You move into university. So you get through <laughs> you get through your unhappy schooling years. You finish school. What happens next? I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew that I was really passionate about the arts. Um, and my parents didn't care what degree I did as long as I did a degree. So I did a Bachelor of Arts and ended up doing an honours year as well and just did a whole bunch of different arts practices. Yeah, like I said, it wasn't until I started textiles 
um, that I really found my medium. So I did work in lots of different mediums back then. So you must have been quite a good student. I mean, I'm noticing here you've got a PhD. You had you did honours back then. Clearly, you're a bit of a girly swat. I like I was okay. I didn't get the best OP. My my younger brother, who's now an electronic engineer, was definitely the genius in the family. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was more the like uh, yeah creative um, person, but yeah. The things I was interested in, I was able to really focus and be good at. So you worked in arts organisations while you were at university and then what happened? And then I accidentally got a full-time job working for Volunteering Queensland, which is the state peak body for volunteering. And I ended up coordinating a project called the Natural Disaster Resilience Leadership Project, which was a project funded um, just post the floods that happened in Queensland. What sort of work did that involve? That involved going out into communities that were affected by you know natural disasters mm. and working with community leaders from grassroots organisations to look at their role in building community disaster resilience. Interesting. Mm, it was really fascinating. So I got to go to communities all over Queensland. I also visited communities in Victoria post the fires and I was also lucky enough to attend a couple of UNESCO Youth Looking Beyond Disaster Forums in Christchurch after the earthquakes and in Sendai after the tsunami. So I got exposed to a lot of different communities who had experienced trauma and I got to talk with community leaders there about what they were doing to recover um, and to build resilience. It feels like you're almost too young to be doing such a responsible <laughs> How old were you when you were doing that work? I was 23 to 25 when I was doing that job. Yeah, that's young, um, huh? It was young, yeah, but it was my job was to facilitate conversations and to really create a space where the experts were the participants in my workshops and I was really creating the space and giving them the opportunity to meet and network with each other and to take time to reflect about what they could do to within their own organizations to Mm. build capacity. What came next? So out of that work I really noticed that every community I visited was turning to the arts as part of their recovery and that creative projects were really important in the healing of individuals and of communities and that really ignited in me the desire to go back to my own creative practice which had kind of fallen by the wayside as a result of working full time. Mm. (laughs) So I started to look for opportunities to bring together my interest in community development and resilience building with my own creative practice which is why I applied to do a PhD at the Victorian College of Arts and then um, basically quite soon after I started I realized that there was this thing called craftivism and it like kind of combined <laughs> all of my favorite things and I uh, yeah finally realized what I wanted to be when I grew up which mm. was a fun moment. <laughs> so when did Igniting Change come into the picture? So I was introduced to Igniting Change maybe a year into my PhD after I listened to um, David Pledger actually give a talk. And how many years ago was that? About four four and a half years ago now. So I went up and talked to David and he recommended that I go talk to Jane. So I did. I went and just set up a meeting with her and introduced myself. And I ended up doing some volunteer work, helping 
igniting change set up their social media platforms. Um, and I haven't been able to get rid of me since. So now I'm the uh, artist in residence in their new office and they very generously give me a space from which to work and do my writing as well. And I continue to do volunteer work here and there with the organisation. I've been really fortunate to be exposed to the Igniting Change family, um, particularly because I've come in from interstate and I really don't feel like I have a strong network down here. And being a part of this family has really given me lots of friends, but also opportunities to meet with really cool grassroots organisations um, and projects. So you're, you've actually had an involvement with Igniting Change and your work. I think when Jane went to Necker a little while ago, she took with her a couple of special items. Mm, so I've done a couple of creative projects with um, Igniting Change. As part of my PhD research, I made uh, the quilt that hangs up on the office here, the bookcase quilt. Uh, and part of the work I was doing through my research was exploring how artists and craftivists can work with organisations in order to help them do their work better. Uh, so I know that one of the challenging things about igniting change is really communicating succinctly what it is that they do because it's uh they do so much different kind of work their approach is so unique and so different so the bookcase quilts is a way to tell the igniting change story in a visual non-linear way and since then I've been fortunate enough to be able to create some gifts that Jane and the igniting change team have been able to give uh, to the people that they work with and I think Again, there's something, the familiarity and comfort and femininity of the work that I do with it being textiles makes it something that's a really heartfelt gift. So you know that Richard Branson, for instance, has got a Tal Fitzpatrick <laughs> quilt in his... Oh, is it a quilt or a cushion? He's got, he's got a couple of cushions. Um, I've done some portrait cushions for him and his children and I've also created a um, quilt that celebrates Richard with Mandela and Desmond Tutu. Oh, fantastic. Congratulations. <laughs> so I, I asked this of everyone, Tal, and I think you might know what the next question is. What has Igniting Change taught you? What's the one thing Igniting Change has taught you? Mm, the thing that it's really reaffirmed for me is the importance of listening, the importance of establishing relationships that are based around equality, particularly in the charity sector. Like I worked in the nonprofit sector for a long time through and through volunteering Queensland was exposed to the work of a lot of different charities and nonprofit organizations. And I think what's really unique about igniting change is how humble they are and how they focus on the fact that people experiencing the issues are the actual experts in their own lives. And I think that's actually rare. Um, most organisations kind of have decided on their strategy of how they're going to do things and how they intervene, which is generally really positive, but not necessarily as empowering as really finding people who are doing, who have experienced issues and have come up with solutions themselves and empowering them to do the change making. That's it for this Igniting Change podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to press subscribe to ensure you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, see the person, not the label.